This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Mini Masterclass. My name is James Roy. I am Program Manager at Westwards and today I'll bring you part one of an interview that I recently did along with Paris from Westwards with Peter Peter Hollow. Peter is a professional cellist. He started out with the Australian Youth Orchestra and now is a founding member of Four Play String Quartet. Four Play String Quartet is a quartet that does modern interpretations of older music and also some more modern stuff. They also recently collaborated with Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman, of course, is a writer, a very well-known writer for, of fantasy, children's fiction, young adult fiction, adult fiction, non-fiction. He's a, bit of, he's a very prolific writer and a very talented writer. And he uh, joined up with Four Play String Quartet to do some spoken word and create a couple of albums. Their most recent album between the groups uh, is known as Signs of Life. That's the title, Signs of Life, and it's got a wonderful picture on the front cover created by Sean Tan. And uh, this is part one of an interview that, as I say, Paris and I did with Peter at his lovely home in Newtown. So please enjoy this. Uh, it's about half an hour long and then in a fortnight's time we'll have part two. So please enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Mini Masterclass. I'm James, your uh, your host as always, and I'm joined today by Peter Hollow. Peter, how are you? I'm very well. In your lovely home in Newtown. Thanks for having us. And Paris is here as well. Paris from Westwards. How are you, Paris? I'm very well, thank you. you, You're the connection. You're the person who connected (laughs) us to Peter. Um, I'm a musician. Um, Paris is a a poet. Um, And Peter's a musician. So we've got a a bit in common. I'm I'm actually really interested in the music side of things in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, But tell us a bit about you and what you do. Because you're a bit of a... Is mm-hmm. polymath the word? You do a whole bunch of different things musically. Yeah, musically. Um, so we were just talking about work as well off off mic. But um, yeah, I have, you know, I mean, I've been a musician all my life since I was tiny. and Primarily um, a cellist? Yeah. Right? And then so uh, early on at school, I took up the cello. Um, I actually really loved the piano since I was too small to play the piano, but getting the cello was was fantastic because you you suddenly play in all these really great social kind of groups and things. So so I was playing in the orchestras and um, playing a bit of chamber music and things through school. Um, and after school, you know how when you're when you're classical music, you play in orchestras and things mm. in, in like youth orchestras so I was getting to tour a bit with Australian Youth Orchestra and things and right. we as um as uni students kind of had this you know we, we just wanted to play outside of the classical realm so that was how foreplay started our our electric string quartet so we were um what was it, it was about 94 so I guess I was in maybe third year uni or something and um, we, the four of us who started the band had all been in the Australian Youth Orchestra um, and just decided we would, we would play rock music and, 
um, and get up on stage that way. And, um, and we managed to get a few lucky breaks quite early on and get booked for um, festivals and things as, as well as support slots with other people. So when was um, that? That was the, nine, the nine, mid-90s? Yeah. So that was kind of... 95 was probably the first year that we were playing publicly. So you're kind of before the whole kind of two cellos zeitgeist kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. The only... There was um, that four-cello band called Apocalyptica that did Metallica covers. And I wasn't aware of them, but I think they probably started about the same time. And we were playing Enter Sandman by Metallica as well. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, we started off doing all these covers um, and learning how to play in that style mm. through sort of learning to mimic, um, you know, other instruments. So, you know, playing the bass and the guitar lines and everything. Yeah. Um, and then over the years, because that was, you know, a long time ago, it was almost three decades ago. Um, yes. We, yeah, it's ridiculous, yeah, but it's we've, um, we kind of moved away from that almost entirely. Um, it's still fun sometimes to um, work work through a piece in these, and you know we've all got pretty good ears, so we just we just sort of pick up pick that stuff up and and whatever. But um, we tend to now write all the material ourselves, right. um, and as a band, we have learnt the I guess the sort of jamming way of writing. So it's not a it's not sitting down at the you know and scoring stuff mm-hmm. or it might be writing little lines and little ideas, but it's very much actually um playing together, improvising, um and we are all improvisers in other contexts as well. Right. So, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean it's mm. yeah, it's an interesting time for for classical music because you do have a whole bunch of um, people yeah, like Lindsay Stilling. I mean, I work mm. in a music shop and uh-huh. and we're currently in the middle of this kind of, mm. I, I want to use the word renaissance, that would sound like a bad pun, wouldn't it? But <laughs> yeah. We're sort of a bit of a renaissance in terms of um, cellos and violins. I, I would right. be demonstrating violins three times a day at the moment wow. because mm-hmm. I think it's partly because shows like... Um, Wednesday with uh, right, with Wednesday Adams cello. playing the cello and suddenly yeah. all the young ladies in the Penrith area want to learn the cello. That's and cute. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's it's really interesting how to me how long it took because we were almost unique um, in not just in Sydney but when even when we played overseas in the late nineties and early two thousands mm. there weren't there weren't many string players or classical musicians doing something like what we did. And if they were, it was really making, like making pop music into classical music. And it wasn't actually playing in the style of, of rock music and, and other non-classical genres. Um, but these days there has been an absolute explosion in like at least 10, 10, 15 years really, but of, of um, people playing I mean, you know, like sort of collect cellists and people who play cello in improv and psych rock and you know, any kind of context you can imagine. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of really opened up, which is, is very exciting, I think. What I like about what mm. I've heard of your music is that, you know, I, I kind of get a bit frustrated when I when people come with the more is more kind of approach. You know, mm. we're not going to have one tenor, we're not going to have three tenors, we're going to have ten tenors. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. And we're not going to have... Yes. One mm. guy playing a cello, we're going to have several. And mm. We're going to have, mm. you know, not one piano stage, but two. Mm. What I like about what you've done is you've kind of taken that tried and that tried and true formula of the string quartet that's been around for what mm-hmm. five, six hundred years, and 
sort of yeah. stuck within that? Yeah, and we do, um, we've resisted um, expanding. You know, sometimes we might collaborate with somebody, but mostly we've resisted that. So no, no Until no, now. No need. Was, uh... Well, yeah, there is, <laughs> there is this project we've had, but it's very, that's a very different kind of collaboration. Um, yeah, but so, I mean, it's much more purist. Uh, I play in other bands, which are very different genre-wise as well, band called Tangents, where it is improvised, really. So all our performances even are completely improvised with electronics and piano and drums and and stuff. Yeah, I was listening to some of your so, Raven stuff earlier today, uh-huh. so the looping and the glitching yes. and the... Yeah, that's... that's, that's it's more postmodern than postmodern, really. I think so, yeah. And I, um, I mean, it all kind of stems from, I guess, wanting to reach out into, you know, to take take the instruments and the music into um, unforeseen directions, I suppose. Mm. Um, and, yeah. And the classical epithet, I think, is both great and difficult, problematic for us, I think, which I could even get onto with with this other project. But um, I think, yeah, I think there's a sort of, to me, a misconception that what we do is classical music and... Um, I think that people who may not have a connection with classical music are quite likely to still enjoy what we do um, and therefore people might make, you know, make assumptions. The cello is quite unique in this out of all our stringed instruments though, because violins made the crossover to folk and Mm. and all the rest and and bass, of course, has become bass, double bass has become bass, jazz jazz and and whatnot. But the only... Apart from a bit of sort of indie stuff that I've heard mm. and, and folk stuff, the the only really out there application of the cello I've mm. heard is a, a band called Crooked Still, which is a, a new grass mm. band from Boston oh, that right. was set up mm. by Rashad Eccleston. Okay. Um, and he mm. plays his cello like a fiddle. It's like fiddle song. Fantastic, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I know a few, a handful of jazz cellists who play, you know, as well in that you know, in, in jazz style and have the chops you need to do mm-hmm. so. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly finds itself much less in those areas. But as I said, I've over the years I've found quite a lot of interesting cellists in yeah. all sorts of realms. So yeah. Well Paris, would you like to um you, you seem to know more about this new project <laughs> than I do. So would oh, you like to take over for a minute about the, the um, Neil Gaiman thing? I know mm-hmm. I know the moment we say Neil Gaiman, a lot of people in the writing world and mm-hmm. in the young adult writing world, the adult writing world, the fantasy world, the T V mm-hmm. writing world. As soon as you say Neil Gaiman people's ears prick up. So I know mine yeah. did. So mm-hmm. Paris, what can you tell us about or mm-hmm. what what Take us into the the Neil Gaiman Well, I was really excited about this particular Mm. collaboration because Mm. as a poet myself, spoken word means a lot. And so I was interested in the the crossover of genres and forms between Mm. music, poetry, spoken word. Can you tell Mm. us a bit about how Um, this collaboration came about and why? Well, I mean, it's very interesting because it is, isn't it? It is spoken word. It is performed you know it might not be performance poetry as you might imagine it but it's yeah it is that but with someone who is not known as a performer mm. primarily at all um but he is and um people who are familiar as fans with Neil Gaiman will know that he does you know he does tour and put on performances and he did with his his partner Amanda Palmer as well so even before 
we had this connection. Um, so people know that he's he's a really fantastic performer mm-hmm. as well, a reader of, of words. Um, we first, the connection was first through being comics fans, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, Four Plays um, long-term manager, Jordan Verzar, is a big comics fan like me. And um, with his mate, Ben Marshall, who's the head of contemporary music at the Opera House, um, they put on for a few years a festival called Graphic at the Opera House um, that was mostly about bringing comics um, and that kind of um, art form, which is words and and pictures, mm-hmm. um, into the world of performance and the you know the, the Opera House. So it was sort of in a way a comics convention, but in a really different way. Yeah. Um, and so they involved. Uh, all sorts of musicians from Australia and, and p- perhaps around the world as well and, and artists and people. And there were just kind of people sitting down for interviews, but there were also people sort of reading comics with them projected and so on. And Jordan had this idea of of of, do, of working out ways to have performance mixed with comics as a medium. Mm. Um, and Neil Gaiman came up because... I think I mean probably, probably decreasingly so because he's known more for his novels and now for all these TV things. But mm-hmm. Neil has always been a really big name in the comics world, and probably for many years it was the Sandman comics and yeah. and other stuff that he had. Yeah, he's written. got a cult following. Yeah, yeah but that, that said, age. I mean, I guess I I probably knew of him equally. And around the same time for that and Good Omens, which he co-wrote with Terry Pratchett, and I've been a fan of Terry since his first novel in the 80s. Um, so, you know, that was a prose novel um, already back then. Um, so when he was invited by Jordan to play at this thing, to perform at this this event, he sort of was delighted to do so, Um and um, I think Jordan just sort of said, I'd really like you. I, want, I have this idea of hybrid stuff, mm. music and words and maybe comics. Um, and I think Jordan just said, "I, you know, I know this string on So he just kind of basically suggested do it with us and Jordan. And, and so since you switched to the manager mode. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there was a, a string quartet bit. I prepared earlier. That's right. There was definitely a bit of that. Um Knowing that me and you know, at least a few of us were fans of Neil's as well. Mm. Um, and so he said, what do you think of this? And Neil, I think, um, was was thinking about what kind of works could fit. And mm-hmm. he suggested this novella called The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains, which um, he had just written. I think it had not at the time been published yet. Mm-hmm. Um and he thought it would work as a, a kind of um, a, a something to read to an audience. Um, and it turns out, I mean, it's pretty substantial. It was um, an hour and 15 minutes, really, to perform the entire wow. work. that's pretty epic. So it, which is really epic and really quite a... I mean, I'm really astounded that he... Um, that in, in effect, that he suggested it and mm-hmm. that he had the faith to say, I'll do this. I don't think it is something he would have done solo. Yeah. If he has his gigs that he does, he'll be reading 
you know, a poem here and a, a short story mm. and telling some anecdotes in between and breaking yeah, things up. Yeah. And um, it's much easier to to do that than try and sustain a, an enormous work like yes, that. Exactly. But he somehow had the faith in us to let us um, soundtrack that work as well. He'd heard a bit and he, he, he's, he always tells the story of how when he heard the Doctor Who theme, that was sort of when he <laughs> that was, was like, it. <laughs> That's it, exactly. Which is nice, and yeah, I mean, he's famously a, a Doctor Who yeah. fan from the. <laughs> so you, you appeal know, to his inner nerd. Exactly. Um, which There's is really sweet. There's plenty of those inner nerds out there. I mean, my oh, my, oh. my son in my son-in-law yeah. and and my daughter they they frequently go to the opera house to hear you know when they they'll put Zelda oh, the, on the, yeah, Zelda exactly. on the screen yes. and, the, yeah. and the Sydney Symphony plays the entire yes. Zelda soundtrack. Which is cool. it's a kind of really cool. cool idea as well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, exactly, the fact that it gets young people to go and actually see an orchestra, even if it's maybe only for that reason, but, yeah, it's kind I'm of I'm just cool. waiting for Trent Reznor to come and do the soundtrack to Quake. From... Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> yeah, I know, well, these days... The, any number of soundtracks that he's been involved with, but yes, imagine that. Um, I yeah, I mean, late, some years later, we as as string players, we performed a as part of an ensemble for a, a manga movie called Tech on Concrete, which was soundtracked by an electronic band called Plaid that I'm a big fan of as well. And so that was just literally, I think we were in the opera theatre in the you know in down below in the in the kind of orchestra pit mm. playing the music to this movie which is really fun as well in a different way yeah. but this was being foreplay writing in a sense kind of our kind of music um and imagining it really we were imagining this for for weeks months really um uh, before getting together with neil like the day before we performed it wow. at the Opera House. So it's pretty much like an um, ekphrastic exercise where you're responding to somebody else's work yeah, of art. Yeah, this was, um, and I, you know, I, I hope we're not, you know, babbling on too long because there's plenty to say about the, the new album, but this mm -hmm. was where we first got together. Um, and it really was, you know, we were sent this entire story and... Um, we read it many times, you know, all of us in depth and wrote lots of notes on it because it is really quite a remarkable work. It's actually quite a poetic story. It's a, essentially a kind of legend that he made up about probably Scotland, probably kind of in the maybe pre-Christian or early Christian era and... Um, it's this sort of quest that becomes a um, a sort of poetic justice of of the history of these the people, mm -hmm. um, and so it's full of references, both internal and in some ways external references as well. And it's also kind of mysteriously referential. So that's the thing is you don't know exactly where it's set, and you don't kind of quite know what the fantastical elements are are about but you do gradually through the story get an understanding of what this relationship is and and the ending is quite beautiful in the way it ties that all together um so we we were able to then kind of tease out all these different 
th- thematic elements and turn them into musical themes. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it was kind of journeying from place to place. And so we had these different themes that were kind of travel music with sort of little rhythmic elements and things. Um, and um, But as as we tend to, there was quite a bit that was left sort of free as well mm-hmm. and I think that's why it worked quite well um, because we hadn't played it at all with Neil until like a day before we got a friend of ours to to read the entire thing and so we practiced it with mm-hmm. somebody reading it um, but yeah you need you, you can't have something just completely composed and then expect someone to to just read it in complete sync with Mm. with that so it was kind of let's vamp on this idea until there and let's bring this thing in sounds like there's lots of moving elements you know can can Um, we we talk about that for a second i I want to spin back a little bit because Mm. you know the example i was thinking about when you were talking then is someone like john williams who might right right he he has a screenplay in front of him and he knows that there's going to be certain beats and themes and so forth and he develops Uh, his theme uh, yeah and he develops that but no and then he he will demo things on mm. his, you know, I don't know how John Williams would have done it back in the day, but yeah. that's right. Nowadays you'll, you'll probably semi-score it and get kind of electronic versions of mm. the instruments and you'll take it to the director who'll say, oh, that's too too happy or shiny or whatever mm. and they'll, they'll, they'll give you some feedback and it'll go around a lot. Uh, and then what happens eventually with the film soundtracks is you will get the kind of the, the fully cut rushes, kind of fully edited but not complete, uh, and then you will time everything perfectly to that, yeah. exactly. And then but then you've got someone like Neil Young, who in that uh-huh. movie Dead Man, the Jimmy mm-hmm. Dimitri, he basically right. sat there with his with his sure. Telecaster and a, and a, sure. and a high, heavily overdriven Fender amp and <laughs> literally played while he watched the movie. Yes. I mean, so what I'm interested in knowing is mm. the process that, Mm. that the four of you used in terms did you just sit mm. down and somebody read something and think oh I think I've, I think I've got something like this and they played something um, on the violin or the cello or whatever and well, responded to that or what was I the think, process yeah I mean it was I guess I not that I've described in great depth but um, as I sort of described we as a group had um, developed a method of writing music together anyway that mm. was very democratic and sort of someone has an idea we play we go round and round on something for a while and then we go okay it needs to go here and we'll suggest anything it could be let's play you know yeah (laughs) any like all sorts of bands i think um yes well i think exactly there were bands where there was you know it might have been a few different songwriters but there was someone who literally wrote the song and the band maybe had the you know the the ability to write their own bass lines or maybe not even and you know so on but but yeah with us it's it is like that and music comes together in that way and you'd be surprised how um how much an improvised work can kind of be almost fully formed just by us tuning into each other. And it doesn't have any markers um, in it, like, you know, mm. that sounds like a Paul song, that's a John song. Like, so not, not usually, yeah. No. Um, it sounds like foreplay and it kind of, at least to us, it, it, we can sort of tell the, our own sound. Um, 
but uh, I think having the external focus of these words and, and ideas also really helped us to um, to form these compositions or whatever you call them around around those ideas as well. Um, so it would be a kind of, we'd talk about, there was the colour red that went through it because the daughter of the maybe protagonist had red hair um, and the... So they're, they're travelling to the misty mountains to um, find this gold in, in these mountains. Ostensibly, that's what they're doing. And the gold is very much described as kind of red red gold colour as well. So this colour appears a number of times through the narrative and we just picked up on that and we had a theme that mutated a little bit around those sorts of ideas. So you'd repeat the musical um, motifs Yeah, to and they would come them. up and it might be that somewhere along the way we're actually in the middle of version two of the travel music um, and something in the words mentions that colour. In fact, there is a bird that flies past at some point that has that colour too, and it's clearly a, mm. a call back to that. Um, and we would bring that bring that out at that moment as well. But of course, it all comes together when you've got the words being performed as well. Um, so, well, I like the we, fact that um, you kind of kept that um, mm. that organic thing a bit like you know theatre mm. should be, where yeah, it has it, to be. it has to be a little mm. bit of thinking on your feet and, and mm. following each other rather than yeah. metronomic kind of yeah. Approach. We it just couldn't, and it's not the way we write anyway. But but um, it's yeah, it sort of had to be. So we had our notes, which were the entire text of the story on A4 paper with scribbling all over it really is what it was. Um, that was the score. Uh, so we would be... Um, so when we got to the little room somewhere in the bowels of the opera house where we said, oh, nice to meet you, Neil Gaiman, and, and all that, <laughs> and then uh, we, we went through it a few times, um, it was really sort of just, yeah, reading along and... Finding those beats and those those you know those areas where things hold together, but Neil has an incredible ear for um, sort of phrasing and um, and timing, mm. I suppose. Really, so I noticed that on the uh, album, just the ebbs and flows, he'd really sort of just, just lean into just them. Even Shakespeare, and, and, he's got that kind yeah. of yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter what he's reading as well, but he he knows how to pace it out and. Um, it doesn't sound like singing. It's not mm. like he's kind of... Although um, he does sing on one track, doesn't oh, he? Oh, yeah, he does. He does sing a bit. Um, and he's, oh, he's got a, a, a nice enough voice. Sing as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's very um, sort of just, I don't know, workman-like voice sort of does the trick. Without having um, heard that exact track, I imagine um, it sounds a little bit like Leonard Cohen, right? Oh, well, it could. It could. That, that's, um, I don't know how... It seems like a fairly low, Leonard Cohen-esque kind he of... Is, well, yeah. Um, no, it's kind of a lot more... It's a bit more light-hearted, isn't it? Mm. The ones that yeah. He but, yeah, so you can imagine sort of actors who speak, sing sort yes. of stuff. But it's not really like that. It's not sort of um, rhythmical reading of poetry even. It is just speaking mm. but it's speaking in a way that just has a real musicality yeah. to it and just I goes really through <laughs> um and i think that's most significant on the most story-like 
ones. Um, I mean, a lot of them are, but so maybe Mobius Strip, which is, is that the second mm-hmm. track even, I think? Yeah, and there was one about um, Joan of Arc. And, well, the Joan of Arc one is more of a song. Yeah. Um, and so... Oh, is that it the does one where Lara story. takes the vocals, though? Um, I can't remember. I'm getting I think them conflated. she joins. I think that's yeah. the one that he does sing. So is, yes, is I thought that was the one. Yes. About. Yeah. This so, is. Oh, so yeah, we've got to. On, on that, can I just ask? Because yes. yeah, because you were given yeah. the the storyline for your opera house performance yeah. with your album. What came first, the lyrics or the music? Well, that's where we managed to have many different ways of. Um, this coming together. Well, I'm guessing um, the William Shakespeare predated so, anything you guys would do. I think Shakespeare <laughs> probably wrote those words a little earlier. A little earlier, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, that was... So I, I, we need to really talk about the whole... Um, the uh, concept. There mm. was a concept, although it wasn't really a concept for this album, but um, after performing this at the Opera House, um, having just got together and... It went really well. Neil really enjoyed it, which mm. was, was lovely. And he, you know, he also s- talks about how in those rehearsals, very little had to be altered mm. at all. He kind of we got to it's a few points where he said, actually, I think you should stop on this word, and leave some space for the words. And you know, a few things like mm-hmm. that where he had you know had these ideas about the dramatization, yeah. I guess, of this story. The most of it we'd already done, which was extremely pleasing for us, I suppose, yeah. as artists. Um, but it went so well that we just thought, well, this can't be the one mm. and only performance. Mm. Um, and I don't remember if it was while he was still here or a bit later, but we recorded it all in, in a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and it sounded beautiful and, and it needed to be released which eventually happened did he read as um, you played or was it just was it he overlay? did yeah he did in this yeah, wow. case um in a vocal booth yeah. um and so there was a bit of opportunity for redoing things if mm-hmm. need be but yeah. mostly it was just sort of done um through in a few chunks you know a few sections um and it worked really really nicely and then it was sort of where do we take this um so it became a, it's also worth mentioning just Quickly, that there was a visual element to it mm-hmm. as well. Um, oh, was since that the it was comic a comics books? festival, yeah. yeah. So Eddie Campbell, who is um, a Scottish cartoonist who lived in Australia for many years, he lived in Brisbane. Um, he was asked to to do some art for it, and he did a, a huge series of um, paintings mm. that were then projected throughout and. Again, they you know they were little scenes mm. or evocations of certain stuff throughout oh, it. Amazing! So um, really multi-sensory. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of lovely, and that that all had to be timed very well with it too. So mm-hmm. there had to be someone who was actually going through. You know, it took think of it as just slides, maybe a yeah. sort of PowerPoint or something. But but you know, again, it couldn't just be press play because the reading was going to be slightly different every mm-hmm. time. So someone was knowing when to place each of those. Yeah. I think in and fact, that's what I love about Eddie. live performance <laughs> um, as well, yeah. just the, the organic nature yeah. of it, the fact that it's enfolding before the audience yeah. and no two performances Amazing. are the same. Yeah. So when we did end up touring it, Eddie came along and um, I think he was the one who was triggering the changes every mm-hmm. time, which is kind of lovely too, that he, as the artist, he was, you know, he didn't want to be in front of the audience, but mm-hmm. he was there 
next to the you know, lighting desk or something, yeah. and he was the one performing those mm. those images. Yeah. Um, so what this became was an illustrated book and this recording that accompanied it. And it kind of, it was a little bit, it became more of a, a book, really. <laughs> so um, it was a little hard for us to kind of push through the foreplay element with this. And there are CD versions and there's a, an audible version or something of it as mm-hmm. well. But um, it kind of got consumed by the, the book and pictures, yeah. really. So that's fine. But um, at least what it meant was that when that was released, we got to launch it and tour it. So mm-hmm. we played... Um, we played Carnegie Hall in New York and we wow. sold that venue out eventually. Um, and somewhere on the West Coast and the Barbican as well, two nights at the Barbican in, in London. And it was performed in Scotland because I guess it kind of is a bit Scottish. So, mm-hmm. so we did the series of events, which was amazing. Um, and we needed along the way also some extra stuff because Neil does always love to talk to the audience mm-hmm. and so having finished this marathon, you know, hour and mm-hmm. 10 minutes or 15 minutes, we would then come back on for um, the kind of encore or whatever. Yeah. Um, and throughout that whole series of performances, we um, we developed a few other things. Mostly at that time, it was Neil going, I really want to, I've always wanted to do this song or that song and it was mm-hmm. kind of covers which mostly haven't ended up on this album yeah. um, and it would be him singing um, there's a there's an old blues song called Psycho which is actually probably best known as a um, Beasts of Burden version <laughs> that they did yeah. that's how I knew it but not how Neil knew it but um, <laughs> we did a kind of cute version of that um, and Neil reading it very, you know, in his kind of deep voice very dramatically um, and a few other things like that. So this was kind of developing a, a kind of repertoire but mostly just sort of throwaway stuff. So that was part one of the interview. If you join us in a fortnight's time, part two will be available and you'll be able to hear more about the collaboration between Peter Hollow and uh, his, his ensemble four-play string quartet and Neil Gaiman, so please join us then.